Good morning, Westgate. How's everybody doing? I missed y'all. Oh, we did this song a few weeks ago, and I read the scripture with it too, but man, it just bears repeating. Um, so y'all, y'all stand with me as we read this together. As I, I read this, and y'all just, 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 t- just take this in. So this is right after Jesus sent out the 72. He sent them out in his power, in his name. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Amen? Amen. That's why we sing. Let's go. I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw darkness run for cover. But the miracle that I just can't get over, my name is registered in heaven. That's right. I believe in signs and wonders. I have resurrection power. testimony from death to life cause grace rewrote my story I'll testify by Jesus Christ the righteous I'm justified this is my testimony this is my testimony sons and daughters walk with blood and washed in water sing the praises of the spirit son and father our God will finish what he started you believe that? oh our God will finish what he started this is my testimony from death to life Grace rewrote my story. I'll testify. By Jesus Christ the righteous, I'm justified. This is my testimony. This is my testimony. Do you believe God still wants to do work in you? That's right. If I'm not dead, you're not done. Greater things are still to come. Oh, I believe. If I'm not dead, you're not done. Greater things are still to come. Oh, I believe. If I'm not dead, you're not done. 
Well, good morning, everybody. You can have a seat. We are so, so glad that you have chosen to come and worship with us this morning. And to all of our friends who are watching online, thank you so much for being here. Hopefully you had a chance to stop by uh, one of the tables on the way in to grab your sermon notes. If not, you can just open the Westgate Chapel app and you'll find those there. And you'll also find um, either in the app or in the pew in front of you a connect card. We would love for you to fill that out. And if it is your first time or even one of the first few times that you have visited us, um, please make sure you stop by the Welcome Center, and um, we would love to just get to know you a little bit more today. Uh, we have a couple of other announcements for you if you just uh, check the screen. Good morning, and welcome to Westgate Chapel. We are so glad you chose to worship with us today. My name is Adrian, and I'm on the worship team here at Westgate. Thanks for joining us. We've got a couple important things to let you know about this morning. Check this out. Come and join us for Bolorama 2024 on March 9th, taking place at Forest View Lanes. Select from two bowling sessions, 10 a.m. to noon or 12.30 p.m. to 2.30 p.m. Grab your friends, life group, or family for a fun bowling experience. All proceeds will go to support this summer's VBS. Visit the app or events page to register for bowling or to enlist your business as a lane sponsor. Our next child dedication class is coming up on February 25th at 10.45 a.m. At Westgate Kids, we want to partner with and equip parents to raise a generation of children who desire to grow with Jesus, engage in community, and reach their neighbors in the nations. Join our kids' ministry leaders for a one-week class on Sunday, February 25th at 10.45 a.m., where we will talk about what child dedication is and how to start discipling even the youngest children. This class will also prepare you and your child for participation in our upcoming child dedication services, taking place on March 10th in both services. Sign up by checking out the Westgate app or heading to westgatechapel.org slash events. This morning will be an amazing time of worshiping together. There are so many exciting things happening today at Westgate, and we're so glad you joined us. Enjoy the service. All right, so now is um, a time of the service I like to call Bless Your Extroverted Neighbor. So we would like for all of you to stand up, and um, you're going to greet the people around you. And if you need something to talk about, there's a game of some kind, I think, tonight. And if you care about who wins, maybe share that with the people around you. So stand up and greet one another.
finish up talking about Taylor Swift or whatever game's going on today. Um, <laughs> I want to invite you. We're, uh, we, we've done this song a bunch here. Um, I want to provide a little more context here on something I think is uh, really important. We don't think about it enough. I want to start reading in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. A um, little background here on this. Uh, Paul and Silas are now in prison for sharing the gospel. And again, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I want you all to think about the circumstances of your own life. Maybe you're here today and maybe you're really struggling. Maybe you're going through a health issue. Maybe you lost your job or a family member. I, I, I know there are people here that are hurting. But just for a moment, I want you to, to keep, keep that in, on one side of your mind. And then I want you to think about Paul and Silas and where they were. They were in prison suffering for sharing their faith. There are very, very few disciples of Jesus that actually lived out a full normal life. Most of them died very painful deaths or in prison. It, it was not, it wasn't pretty. But through it all, throughout the New Testament, we encounter stories of them still praising their Savior. They're giving glory to God above everything else. It doesn't mean they were they were happy, but they, they, they found joy of the Lord in the midst of all. And it's because, it's because of how God used them that the gospel just spread like wildfire. So now take that back to your own life. I want you to think about whatever you're struggling with, whatever you struggle with in the past. And acknowledge if we're, I mean, Paul and Silas, they were in prison and they're just, it says they're just singing or they're praying and singing hymns of joy. And guess what? Through that, this jailer who is about to take his own life and be forever damned to eternity in hell, because of what Paul and Silas chose to do, he gave his life to Jesus. That soul was saved, and through this story, countless more have been saved. If you're sitting there thinking that, man, I don't know how God could possibly use what I'm going through, think again. Because that's proof right there. God wants to use your story. And you have to do through, through, the, through the unimaginable, through the, through the impossible, 
we have to choose to praise God in the midst of that. And I'm telling you guys and gals, like there's power in using your story to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So as we sing this next song, in these next couple moments here, I just want you to bow your head and close your eyes. Just ask God to God, draw me close to you. And help me, help me to, to lean into you. Help me to praise you this morning. Just enter into his presence. God wants to use your story. for me. 
when you turn the microphone on. <laughs> you may be seated. You know, uh, God is good. Amen. What a great morning. What great. Thank, would you thank the worship team for leading us in worship this morning? They, uh, they worked so hard uh, to prepare uh, to lead us each, uh, each week into the presence of God. And, uh, you know, this morning, uh, before we uh, pray and take up our, our morning offering together, uh, hopefully you had an opportunity to go over to the ministry fair and uh, experience some of the good food. I mean, I walked out of last service and before I came back and closed the service and all I could smell was churros through the building. And the overwhelming thought was like the lines of the song they were singing about like the goodness of God. I'm like, man, God is good. Smell this place. Um, but it was, it was wonderful. I hope you had the opportunity to enjoy some fellowship. We're going to have the ministry fair open at the end of the service today, and I would encourage you still to go through. You know, as a church, we talk about uh, growing deep roots in Christ and having a broad reach to share the gospel with people. And uh, when we talk about having deep roots, our passion as a church is that we would be deeply rooted in Christ, but we believe that that takes takes place best in our lives, uh, that we develop a vibrant relationship with him when we are connected to other people within his body, within the church. And the ministry fair is a really great opportunity to learn about different ways to get connected into the life of the church, but also to be able to then use the gifts that God has given you to go out and to share the good news of Jesus in our community and throughout the world. And so I hope that you'll stop by, look at each of the tables, ways to get involved, ways that your, your family can be ministered to, but also serve together and let that be a blessing to you. And as we move to our time of offering, I just remind you as you walk through, as you give faithfully every single week of your tithes or your offerings, uh, it enables us to do all of the things that you see out there uh, this morning, the various ministries that are reaching people in our community and throughout the world, and the opportunities that we have every week to connect and study God's Word together. And so I want to say thank you for your faithful support as we uh, go to our time of worship through offering. So would you pray with me as we give this time to the Lord? God, you are good. And we give you thanks for the way in which you have pres provided for us so faithfully. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the way in which you are doing so many incredible things in the life of this church. Father, as we uh, come together and find community with each other and grow deeper in our relationship with you, but then how you are using so many people in this room to go out and to share the good news of your son Jesus with other people in our community throughout the world. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to multiply that work. We are giving back in our offerings uh, this morning, Lord, because we recognize every good gift that we have comes from you, and we want to be a part of what you are doing around the world. So we pray, God, that you would take our offerings as we give them, that they would, we, first, Lord, we offer them as worship, not out of obligation or a feeling of we have to, but we give them as worship. And we ask, God, that you would multiply them so that more people would know your son, Jesus. So be glorified as we worship you together today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you are on the center aisles, you can grab those uh, offering buckets and just go ahead and pass them out to the sides. And uh, let's continue a spirit of worship as we take our morning offering together. Here is a bowl of M&M's. Can Daddy have some? He can have some too. And Mommy? Mommy can have some too, yeah. And but can you? Sure. And me? Mm-hmm, but not until I get back. Okay. So, you promise? Um, I can count the cups. You can. I can count. But don't eat any, okay? And stay there. Okay. I'll be back. One, two, three. Just look at me. You can have fruit snacks, but you can't have them right now, okay? You gotta wait. You gotta wait. Until mommy and daddy come back. Okay? You can't eat these yet. You gotta wait until we come back. I'm gonna leave them right here. Don't touch them. Wait, okay? We're gonna come back. Don't eat them yet. Don't eat them. We'll be right back. We just gotta go get something. Just go. Just wait a That's fantastic, isn't it? I, uh, as I watch these videos, man, I'll tell you, if it teaches us any lesson, it doesn't matter, I don't think, what age we are, young or old, waiting patiently for something is not something we necessarily love. And, uh, you know, when you think about the idea of patience, what is patience? Patience uh, can be defined this way, that it's uh, enduring uh, discomfort without complaint while waiting for something that we desire. It's waiting for something that we desire to have, but in the process, oftentimes, enduring discomfort and not complaining as we wait. That is how uh, patience can be defined. 
And no matter how you look at it, patience with people is something that I think maybe at times we're not generally that good at as human beings. Uh, For example, if you've ever been to a movie theater on a Friday night, especially recently, and you walk up and all you want to do is get a soda before you head into your movie, you go up to the concession line, and of course, they've only got two lines open, and there's 10 people here, and there's about 10 people here, but as you're trying to decide which line will go faster, you realize, well, on this side, there's a family of like five people together, and so inevitably, they're going to be all together. Things should move quick. So you choose that line, and you get there, and you're waiting. And then, lo and behold, as you, that family of five, which stands right in front of you, gets up to the register, the mom finally looks down at her children and says, what do you guys want? And you think to yourself, are you kidding me? We just stood here for 10 minutes and you didn't ask your kids what they wanted. You're slowing down the process. And so as they're having these grand debates about what they should get, you see like 20 people going through the line in front of you, moving quickly. You begin to break into a cold sweat as you want to get towards the front while you watch little Johnny debate with his mom whether his life will be more full with Swedish fish or some sort of gummy bears, right? And you think to yourself, patience. Maybe it's when you go to Costco on a busy day, and as you move to the self-checkout line, it seems that your prayer life has been in really good shape because every single line is like six people deep, except for the one you got lucky to move into. There is one person at the register with only one item, and you are sure you're going to blaze past everyone. Except then, as you get into the line and you find yourself stuck with people behind you, the lady at the screen begins to stare blankly at it, pondering how wonderful or how horrible computers are in our modern age, has no idea how to use it, and you begin to watch as everybody else and all the other lines are moving past you, and you know they're staring at you, giving a look going, (laughs) you thought you were going to beat us, right? This may have happened to me yesterday. Um, But then, you know, you sit and you debate, like, do I move to another line? And so you move to another line because you think it's going to be faster. And then the attendant comes and helps them, and they leave within 30 seconds. But now you're stuck over here, and everybody else is going, ha, 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 I shouldn't have moved, right? And you begin to wonder whether the Lord is trying to teach you a lesson for thinking your prayer life was that good. Patience. Whether it's sitting in traffic, dealing with slow internet speeds, waiting on hold for customer service, sitting at the doctor's office, assembling Ikea furniture, or having children and raising children. The list could go on and on. Patience is not something that we are generally good at. Patience takes work. It takes work because of our natural inclination to want to put ourselves first. It doesn't matter what other people's needs or situations may be. When my felt needs aren't first, the natural response often is to be tempted to become impatient. But I find that this is not only true in our lives when it comes to people, but it's also true in our relationship with God. Patience with God involves faith. And to exercise faith means to surrender your life and control of your life to God, putting his priorities before your priorities. And here's what's so hard about that. God doesn't always work on our timing. There are things that we want and things that we desire, and he is moving at a different pace. And often when this happens, you know you've experienced it. You may find yourself saying to God, God, why aren't you answering me? Why aren't you moving? I can't hear you. You're moving too slow. But what's so hard about it is not just timing, but oftentimes as well, God's purposes and his priorities are different than our own. In other words, his plans for our life oftentimes vary from what we might think is best. 
And when this happens, we can find ourselves struggling, asking God, why have you allowed this certain experience or this certain trial or difficulty to happen in my life? Why won't you explain to me and help me to understand how this is better than what I had planned? And thus we find ourselves in a position of taking things into our own hands or waiting patiently on God. We find ourselves at a crossroads. And this morning, we're going to continue in our study together through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And as we do, we're going to look at Habakkuk and the example that he gives us on how we can wait patiently on the Lord. If you've got your Bibles with me, I'd encourage you to open up to that Old Testament book of Habakkuk. We're going to be in chapter 1 together. And the series we've been going through is entitled, Why? Trusting God When You Don't Understand. Understanding that in Habakkuk's life, there were many things that he was experiencing and going through, much like we do, that we don't understand why it's happening or why God has allowed it, and how is it that we trust him in the middle of those situations? What you'll see, and hopefully you got some sermon notes as you came in this morning, I'd encourage you to pull those out and you can use them to follow along, but you'll see at the top that what we have been studying is that Habakkuk has been wrestling with God's silence in the face of Judah's idolatry, violence, and rampant injustice. I want to take just a moment, especially for those who haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks, to, to remind you of a quick history that sets up where we're going this morning. You'll see letter A, that the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, have been exiled by Assyria. They had been conquered by Assyria and then taken off into exile. Uh, you'll remember that Israel was divided into two kingdoms. If you look at the map on the screen, it was two kingdoms. They had been divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And each one of those kingdoms had their own kings. But the northern kingdom of Israel uh, had kings that were notorious for leading the people away from God. They brought in all sorts of idolatry, idol worship, led the people away from God to the point that they were literally rejecting him. And because of this, God decides to use the Assyrian army to come as an instrument of punishment. You'll see here in this slide this picture of the Assyrian empire and how they swept down into Israel, conquered the northern kingdom, and then drug the people away into exile, away from their land. Yet while all of this was happening and taking place, Judah in the southern kingdom wasn't faring that much better. Judah had had some kings that were definitely better than the northern kingdom. In other words, they really sought to follow after God and to honor him and to lead the people in that direction. Remember that uh, about 12 years prior to the writing of this book, there was a king named Josiah who was considered to be one of the best kings of the southern kingdom. And while the people themselves had also gone into all sorts of idol worship, he actually brought the people back to a solitary focus on the one true God and worshiping him only, uh, instituted all sorts of religious reforms. But then he met an untimely death as somebody murdered him. And another person eventually came into power, and that person was King. King Jehoiakim. And letter B, what we see is that when Jehoiakim was king, Judah turned away from God again. Rabbinic writings talk to us about Jehoiakim and the type of person that he was. They describe him as a godless tyrant who committed atrocious uh, sins and crimes while leading Judah back into idol worship, uh, into the worship of many other gods, and away from God himself. 
He's also portrayed as a king in these writings as an ins- someone who had incestuous relations with his mother, with his daughter-in-law, and also his stepmother. And he regularly murdered men within the kingdom, taking advantage of their wives and their families, and then seizing their property for himself. He was a horrible, horrible man, and he led the kingdom of Judah astray. And when we began our study a few weeks ago, uh, as Habakkuk is, is writing, as the story is being written, uh, what we see is that Habakkuk was crying out to God on behalf of the, the, the kingdom of Judah. He was grieving the sinful state of the kingdom and its leaders and lamenting God's silence as he mourned the sinfulness of not only the leadership, but also of the people and the rampant injustice that they faced. Crying out and saying, God, where are you? How can you let this happen within your people? And what we see, letter C, is that Habakkuk's lament was an accusation of injustice against the Lord because of the Lord's silence. The situation that was at hand called for the divine judge to enter in, to be involved. And he's the one who always guaranteed justice for his people and justice in the world. So how could a holy and a pure God not respond to the guilty in Judah and Jerusalem and let them go unpunished? How could he continue to turn a deaf ear to the prophet's complaints? You see, the sorrow that Habakkuk felt stemmed from the fact that nothing, no pain, no suffering had been alleviated by any evidence of God's care or concern for this situation. But in the middle of his crying out, as we saw together last week, it tells us that the Lord answered him. And when the Lord answered him, he did not answer the way that Habakkuk expected. Habakkuk was asking the question of why. Why would you do this? Why would you allow it? But God gives him a much deeper answer. God reminds Habakkuk of three things. The first thing is this. He says, Habakkuk, I want you to remember who I am. I am the God that is in control of all things. I am the one who controls kings and kingdoms. I control every nation on this earth. I am the all-powerful God who is in control of all things. Secondly, he said, Habakkuk, you need to understand that this did not catch me by surprise. I am already at work. My hand is already in the situation working. And thirdly, he reveals to him a little bit of what he's doing. And he says, Habakkuk, what you need to understand is, is I am raising up the Babylonians, this horrible, evil, ruthless people who are cruel and horribly violent, and they are going to be my instrument of judgment against the kingdom of Judah, much in the same way the Assyrians were for the northern kingdom of Israel, that they are going to be taken and conquered and dragged off into exile. And you can only imagine where we left off last week, that as Habakkuk hears this response from the Lord, his heart must be deeply grieved. The problem now is that Habakkuk does not like the answer that God has given to him. To say the least, it is incredibly uncomfortable. What God is about to do is terrifying at best, and it is full of unknowns. And it leaves Habakkuk with all sorts of questions. Questions about the nation of Israel, like are they still God's chosen people? Is he going to keep his covenant promise with them that they will always be a great nation and that through them the world will be blessed? He's got questions not only about the nation of Israel, but questions about the very character and nature of God. How could a good and loving and holy just God allow this type of thing to happen? He's got questions about his own life. 
Like, what's going to happen to me in the midst of this plan? As he wrestles through all of these questions, he has no answers that seem immediate. And once again, he is put in a position of waiting on God to answer. And I'd ask you this morning, have you ever found yourself wrestling with the answers that God has given you? Maybe not liking some of the things that have happened in your life, understanding that for some reason he's allowed these things to happen and you're questioning God, why have you let this happen to me? Maybe even those situations have brought doubt into your mind about who God is and whether or not he is for you. Maybe it brings you to a place of feeling as though he is continuing in silence and not answering the questions that you are wrestling with as well. What I want you to see this morning is this, is that patience with God can be a challenge when we don't get the answers that we're looking for. Whether we're struggling through past brokenness in our life, whether we're dealing with uh, doubts and questions about our future, whether we're dealing with the loss of a job, going through our life as a single person and not being happy with the station that we are in. Maybe you're married and there is no joy and happiness in your marriage, but only anger and strife. Or maybe you have gone through the experience of having an unfaithful spouse saying, God, how could you allow this or let this happen? There's so many different things that we can wrestle with. Being unable to have children, or having a child who is making poor decisions in life, receiving a life-threatening diagnosis, or even losing a loved one, all of them and more, leaving us in a place of saying, why, God? Why would you let this happen to me? And how are you good in the midst of that? Certainly, there could have been something better that you had for me. And we relate all too well to Habakkuk's struggle because his struggle is our struggle. Certainly Habakkuk stood with the knowledge of what God was going to do with his people and what he was about to walk through. And he thought to himself, there has to be a better way. I don't like the path that you have chosen for me. And I want you to see this as Habakkuk responds to God this morning. If you have your Bible, look with me in Habakkuk chapter one, and we're gonna begin together in verse 12. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them, speaking of Babylon, as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like the crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in a dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly kill the nations forever? It's a hearty response that Habakkuk gives to God, voicing his displeasure with what God has chosen for Judah and for himself. 
But I want you to see some very specific things about Habakkuk's response this morning. In your notes, letter A, one of the first things we see is that Habakkuk's complaint indicates his familiarity with the Lord. Like he knows who God is. He begins with a description of who God is in in a very vibrant way. And let's look at that together again. Verse 12 says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God and my Holy One? O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. I want you to look at how he talks about God. He calls him by his, what we would call his covenant name, Yahweh. That's number one in your notes, Yahweh. And you'll see that I have in parentheses there the word Lord all capitalized. That's because anytime you see in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the word Lord in all capitals, that is the holy covenant name of God that he gave to his people in, uh, in Exodus. It was so holy that they very rarely used it. But Yahweh is the Hebrew that is behind the English. So anytime you see that, you know that they are using the covenant name of God. And God's covenant name Yahweh indicated to his people his eternal faithfulness. And it would elicit confident dependence on him. In other words, when they thought of the name Yahweh, the one true God, it reminded them of the covenant that he had made with his people, that they would be a great nation, that he had made to Abraham so many years ago, and that they would be a blessing to the entire world, and that his promises that he would always be with them, and that he is the one that would ensure that the covenant would be fulfilled. When you think about that, a simple translation of his name simply could be put today this way. Yahweh means I was God, I am God, I will be God, and I always and forever am God. I am in control, and I will be faithful to my promises. But not only does he address him as the faithful God of the covenant, but number two, he addresses him as the holy one. And when he uses the word holy one, he is talking about God's perfect moral purity. I want you to see this. The word holy itself means that something is set apart from other things, that it is different in some way. Maybe you could even say better in other ways. And the word holy was actually used commonly even by other nations in reference to their own gods. In other words, they would say that their God was holy, that he was set apart because he was not human or flesh, but he was different. And so they would call their gods holy. They would speak of them as being set apart. But the truth is, is their gods, while they may be different or set apart, most often they were not good. And whenever we see the biblical writers talking about the holiness of God, not only are they talking about the fact that God is not just flesh, but he, he is the one who has created all things and is in control of all things and set apart, what they are also speaking about is something much deeper. When you read about God's holiness in the Bible, it speaks to the fact that God is set apart from all other gods because of his perfect moral purity. In other words, nothing evil can stand before God in his holy purity. Think of uh, the prophet Isaiah when he uh, stood uh, in, in the heavens before the very throne of God and he looks at God's throne and he sees God in all of his holiness. What does the Bible say that he does? He falls down to his knees and he cries out, woe is me. Literally, I am going to die. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips 
and I come from a people of unclean lips. In other words, as he stood in front of the perfect moral purity, the holiness of God, he fell down because of the sinfulness of himself, seeing how separate he was from God. He couldn't even stand in his presence because of his sin. This is how Habakkuk addresses God. He says, you are the holy God of the covenant that you have made with your people. You are perfectly moral. And number three, you are the rock. He refers to him as the rock, which gives the idea of permanence, stability, and protector. God is often referred to with the, as, as the rock all throughout the scriptures. And one of the places I like to reference for that is in the book of Matthew, the parable that Jesus tells of the wise and foolish builders. You might remember it. There was a kid's song that went along with it. I'm not going to sing for you this morning. But... Um, it talks about how there, uh, a foolish builder would go and build his house on the sand, and when the rains and the storms of life would come, that it would knock over that house because it didn't have a sure foundation. And Jesus used this parable to say that you should build your house upon a rock. In other words, upon something that gives you a very firm foundation so that when the storms of life come and the, rain, the rains and the waves batter this house, that it will not fall, but it will stand strong. This is the picture that Habakkuk has when he talks about God being his rock. The word evokes the feeling of permanence and stability. And as Judah's rock, God was the protector of his covenant people. So what I want you to see at first here is this Habakkuk response. He's very familiar with who God is. And he speaks to that. But letter B, Habakkuk's complaint also indicates his familiarity with Babylon. Quickly, you'll see, number one, that as he thinks about Babylon, he understands that they were an instrument of judgment, that they were an instrument of judgment that God was using. He had revealed that to him previously. Babylon was one of the most advanced civilizations in the ancient world. They were incredibly wealthy. They had incredible power and a mighty military. And they overthrew and conquered even the powerful Assyrian Empire that had dragged the northern kingdom of Israel off into exile. They were going to be used, this powerful nation, as an instrument of justice. But what really got to Habakkuk number two is that they were the epitome of wickedness. That they were the epitome of wickedness. When you think about Babylon, you think of a nation that, that, and, and kings that worshipped many different gods. If you turn to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, who was part of the exile, you'll see that his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, are there, and they refuse to worship the golden images that have been set up for them to worship. And because of that, what do they do? They throw them in a fiery furnace to have them killed and burned to death because they would not worship. You think of Daniel, and because he wouldn't do what people said, falling down and worshiping the king, that they wanted to throw him into a lion's den. This was a cruel people who treated people mercilessly. Not only that, with all of the gods that they worshiped, sexual immorality was rampant within their worship of other gods. This was a part of who they are. And so Habakkuk says to God in verse 13, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors, but also remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man who is more righteous than he Babylon was the epitome of wickedness. He also knew, number three, that they were bent on conquest at the expense of the innocent, that they would go and sweep through the entire earth, conquering nations and coming and, and treating innocent people with great brutality. He uses this little story that is told within his conversation with God 
And he says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And he says, he, speaking of Babylon, Babylon brings all of them up with a hook and drags them out with their net. And he gathers them in his dragnet and he rejoices and is glad. He is unhindered in the brutality that he is bringing against the nations. And as number four, he recognizes as well that they were a God unto themselves. What does he say? He says, therefore, Babylon sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. He wrestles as he watches Babylon worship themselves and not God. They were an evil, evil nation. And here's Habakkuk's dilemma, letter C. He sees God's answer as incompatible with his nature and his character. As he looks at the character of God and who Babylon is as God's instrument of justice, he cannot bring those two things together in his heart and his mind. He can't fathom that a holy God would allow the wicked to prevail over the righteous, that God was supposed to be their rock and he was supposed to be their protector, but now he will allow judgment to come from this evil nation. He says, is he to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? In other words, God, you are Yahweh, the covenant God. You've promised you'll always be with us. Have you now left us? Will you let this go on forever? And how often do we find ourselves wrestling with the same questions in life when we get answers that we don't like? When we don't like God's answers, we often struggle in the same way. What we know to be true about God seems incompatible with what he has allowed. We will ask questions like, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? I'm a good person. I've done good things. I don't do bad things to people. How could God allow this thing to happen in my life? What I want you to catch even as we wrestle with those questions is that Habakkuk's views of God were right. His view of God in terms of him being holy and the covenant God of Israel, of the fact that he would be their rock and their protector were absolutely right, but his perspective was far too limited. He looked for the punishment of the wicked so that prosperity of Israel would be assured. But God, who knew from the end from the beginning, looked for the punishment of Judah so that they would be restored to right fellowship with himself. In other words, our point of view in life is often only our immediate situation. We are so nearsighted in saying, I want this situation to change because it is uncomfortable and I don't like being here. But what we don't have the privilege of having is what God does which is that he sees the very end from the beginning. That literally God is in control of all of history and is weaving a story together of our lives and the lives of others, not the, for the purpose of just here and now, but for the purposes of eternity. And it is for our good and the good of others for eternity. This is what Habakkuk wrestled with. This is what we wrestle with ourselves. And when we encounter these situations, we are often brought to a place where we have a decision to make, a crossroads, if you will. Will I decide to reject God and just say to myself, he is no good, how could he allow this to happen? Or will I choose to trust him and wait patiently for understanding? 
I want you to see this morning how Habakkuk responds. But first, when we struggle with God's answers, we inevitably face the temptation to respond in the following ways. Letter A. One of the ways that we struggle and the temptation we face is to throw out what we know to be true about God. When a hard situation comes into our life that doesn't feel fair and doesn't feel right, we immediately assume the worst about who God is. We believe all sorts of lies that Satan wants to tell us. And the truth is, is we wrestle with questions like, how can God be good? How can he really have my best in mind? But can you stop for a minute with me and just see something clearly? Literally the lies that Satan uses in our minds like that is nothing new and nothing different from what he told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. His ways have never changed. He is not a very creative person. Do you remember when Adam and Eve are sitting there? What does he do? He says, eat that fruit. I know that God told you not to, but what's his reasoning? Because God's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best in mind. There's something better that's out there. Leave him alone and go take things into your own hands. You will experience everything that you have ever desired. Just leave God behind. And my friends, he has been telling that lie for centuries to every person that walks this world, causing us to desire to throw out what we actually know to be true about God. And what do you know is true about God? If there is one thing that you can ground your heart into, what is it? that God sent his son into this world to die for you even when he re- you rejected him. That God himself, when you rejected him, said, I am going to make a way for you to be restored in a right relationship with God by sending his son Jesus, who lived a perfect life and who had no sin, to come and to die on a cross, paying the penalty for your sin so that you could be reconciled to God. Do we need any greater picture of the love of God? Do we need any greater picture of how God is for you, that he would do this on your behalf? It's very easy for us when we go through trials and difficulties and situations to throw out what we know to be true about God and even to throw out the fact that he has proven so deeply how much he is for us. We must resist that temptation Letter B, we also have to resist the temptation to allow our doubts to be destructive. We allow our struggles and our doubt often to draw us away from God. When bad things happen, like a child who doesn't get what they want or experiences something they don't want from their parents, what do they do? They stomp their feet and they walk away. They slam doors. They want nothing to do with them, right? I remember when my children were young, one of the phrases that was often uttered as they were stomping away was, I hate my life. And I thought to myself, that's just a really cute way of not getting in trouble and saying, I really don't like you, dad. Um, But... It was this whole thing of shutting down and stomping away and wanting to move away from relationship because we don't get what we want. And we do this often with our doubts. We allow them to be destructive. Is that rather than going to God, we run from him. And I can remember that as I walked through one of the more difficult seasons in my own life where I was wrestling with how God could allow something to happen in my life, my dad's words have never left me. The advice that he gave me was this. He said, Rob, get a journal. And I want you to write everything down. I give this to you this morning as well as wisdom that has guided my life. Grab a journal. Write down all of your thoughts. Write down all of your questions. Write down all of the things that are on your heart, even your struggles with God. And then keep talking to God. 
because your inclination is going to be to pull away from him rather than to push into him. When people hurt us or we think that people are hurting us, we naturally run from them. But here's the thing. While we naturally reject people and remove them from our lives, what we're often doing is reacting rather than being reflective. We act before we ask questions. This is what I love about Habakkuk, is that he doesn't react, but he patiently waits. Don't allow your doubts to be destructive. Another temptation, letter C, is this, is that we will often spend more time talking about God rather than talking to him. Rather than talking to God, we'll talk to all of our friends and our family and people that surround us about how God doesn't care about me. If God loved me, he wouldn't allow this to happen or he wouldn't be silent in my life or how I don't like a God who would allow certain things to happen or that God is absent or maybe that he isn't real. And we spend more time talking about God to people, questioning his goodness or even his existence rather than actually talking to him. And can I be honest, I have learned the hard way in life on this specific truth. There have been many times in my life where I've walked through hard seasons, even with wise advice from people, and I've become fatalistic in my own thinking. Why talk to God? He's going to do what he wants to do anyway. I'll just go about my life, let him do what he's going to do, and, you know, I'll try to be as faithful as I can. And in the process, what I do is I disconnect my heart from him, and I stop seeking him, and I stop growing in him. And then I begin to wonder why it feels like there is this chasm that exists between me and God. Because rather than talking to him, I go and I talk more about him. What I hope you'll see in Habakkuk's response in one short verse at the very beginning of chapter two is that his response provides us with a model to follow when we are questioning God's direction for our lives. In chapter two, verse one, it says these words. Habakkuk says, after all of this complaint, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. And I will look out to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Here's what I want you to catch. Letter A, Habakkuk's response. Rather than withdraw from God, Habakkuk took his questions about God to God for answers. The indication in this passage is that Habakkuk waited a long time for God's answers. It wasn't like he just had this really quick, you know, as quickly as we can read through it. It wasn't like it all happened in one sitting. He had been crying out to God for a long time before he answered. Then even more time passed before uh, God would answer him again as he cried out saying to God, that God, this situation doesn't feel fair. What Habakkuk models for us here is a man who consistently took his questions about God to God. How is it that we do this in the Christian life? We can do this by going to God's word. It is one of the key ways that God has spoken to us about who he is and how he is for us. And we can understand more about the very character and nature of God. We can do this by going to God regularly and consistently in prayer, beating down his door, asking him to to speak on our behalf, but remembering that prayer is not just about changing God's mind to fit our will. Going to God in prayer is about going to God and saying, God, I have surrendered my heart and my life to you. Help me to understand your direction and your best for my life because I want to align my heart to you. But then also we can do this by, by, by going to God's people and having God's people in our life within the church who will continually point us back to God. 
And so Habakkuk gives us this example of not withdrawing from God, but pushing in and taking his questions to him. But letter B, it's also clear that Habakkuk possessed the ability to distinguish between the human and the divine voice because this wasn't his first rodeo. You get what I mean, right? Anybody here ever been to a rodeo? Like going to a rodeo? You'll see a picture on the screen of a crazy looking bull. It's a fascinating sport if you watch it on TV. Have you ever considered how they train and get ready for this kind of life? Watch this video behind me. I'll I'll explain it just a little bit. They will literally, cowboys who are going to go to the rodeo and ride bulls, train from the time they're young. And one of the ways that they do this is by jumping on sheep, right? Have you guys ever seen this? They call it mutton riding. And these kids will get on sheep and they tell them to hold on to their wool for dear life. And then they let them out of a pen. And oftentimes they find themselves falling, uh, learning lessons about how to fall, learning lessons about holding on tighter, uh, getting stomped by mean sheep, uh, as you'll see there. Uh, Probably one of my favorite ones is right here. This kid knows what he's doing. Don't you love this? Like that is a kid who has gotten some really good wisdom. Plant your face right in that sheep's butt and just hold on for dear life, right? <laughs> Look at him, man. Proud kid. He's going to be great. Here's, here's why I share this. When we talk about something, being, when we use the phrase, this wasn't his first rodeo, what are we saying? You're saying that a person isn't a novice or inexperienced in a given situation. What you're saying is, Is it for a person that they are well-experienced or knowledgeable in a specific situation? For Habakkuk, what we see is a man who wasn't new to seeking after the voice of God. It would have been easy for him to turn away from the Lord and seek the input of his friends or family or even listen to his own voice rather than to God's. And we know this to be true because we do this ourselves. How do I know? Because our most natural human reaction and instinct is to seek our own experience or the input of others in difficult situations before we ever turn to God. And I would venture to safely assert that for many Christians, even many of us here in this room this morning, that we struggle with turning to God because we have not developed an intimate relationship with God in the absence of our struggle Habakkuk's natural response was to withdraw from the cacophony of voices that would lend themselves to varying speculation about God's intent. And it was to seek God's voice while he was alone. This response didn't come from a whim, but from a person that had spent time developing the depth of his relationship with the Lord. He knew already that the Lord was good. He knew that he could approach the Lord with his difficult questions. And he knew that in time, he would hear from the Lord. He knew that because he knew the Lord and he trusted him. And he was determined now that he would wait patiently for God to speak. And in this, he gives us exactly what we need to understand how to walk through these trials and difficulties in our own lives. When you get an answer from God that doesn't feel right and it feels in conflict with what you know to be true about God, will you run from him, shun him, push him away? Or rather, will you do what Habakkuk does when he says, 
I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and I will look out to see what God will say to me. Rather than withdrawing, will you push in? Will you learn to listen not to human voices but to the divine voice? And will you allow yourself to learn to wait patiently for God to speak? For he will reveal to you in time how he has the best for your life. God, I thank you for our time together in your word today. And no matter what situation we may be walking through, I ask God that you would speak into that this morning. For each individual here, no matter what it is, whether it's something that they're going through in this moment, or maybe it's something they've been dealing with from their past God and they feel a separation from you, Lord, I pray that through your word and the power of your Holy Spirit that you would teach us this morning by reminding us of who you are and how good you are and how you have proven that over and over again. By reminding us, God, that we can bring our questions and our doubts to you. It doesn't phase you. And in the process, God, would you teach us to wait patiently for you? because we know intuitively in our minds and in our hearts that you are good and that your plans for our life are good. Help us, God, to trust that you see the bigger picture that we cannot see. And God, give us the strength to continue to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.
close our service this morning, I just invite you, if there are any prayer needs that you have, our prayer team would love that opportunity to pray with you today. Whether it's prayer for healing, whether it's prayer for a situation that you're walking through, or you just want to talk with somebody about some of the struggles that you have been dealing with, our prayer team will be up here at the front of the stage uh, at the close of the service on both sides. We'd invite you to come. As well as we uh, close our service, uh, again, just a reminder that our ministry fair is taking place today. would love you to stop by and look for ways that you can get connected, not just connected in relationship with others, but connected and serving and using the gifts that God has given you. And while you're at it, you might as well uh, enjoy a few good churros. But I warn you, there's very few left. So do not create a stampede on your way out these back doors. But... With that being said, uh, we have had a great morning worshiping together, giving God glory, and I pray that God blesses you in this next week as you continue to faithfully follow him. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.